The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. The Lord's table is one of the most important elements of worship for the believer in the church age. The purpose for the Lord's table is for us to be reminded and for us to, on a regular basis, um, on a regular basis to look back on the cross and to reflect upon all that has been provided for us in our salvation. The Lord's table is a picture through the unleavened bread and the cup of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table, therefore, is to be participated in by every believer. It doesn't matter if you're a member of this church or not. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord's table is for you. However, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Lord's table will have no meaning for you and would be just empty ritual. The ritual has reality only for the believer who understands the significance of the two elements. The unleavened bread is a picture of the sinlessness, the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his humanity, Jesus Christ was without sin. That is the function of the uh, virgin conception and virgin birth. He was born without benefit of a human father, and therefore he did not inherit the sin nature or Adam's or uh, did not have imputed to him Adam's original sin. The unleavened bread represents the fact that Jesus Christ in his impeccability was fully qualified to go to the cross and there to die as a substitute for us. The cup, on the other hand, is a picture of that work of Christ on the cross whereby he secured salvation for the human race. It was not that he died physically for mankind, but that he died as a spiritual substitute because the penalty for sin was not physical death, but spiritual death. God told Adam in the garden, in the day that you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He did not die physically for 930 years, but he did die physically, I mean spiritually, the instant he ate of the fruit. He was separated from God when God came to, when the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, God the Son, came to, uh, as, he, as he did every day, to walk with him in the garden, uh, Adam and the woman ran and hid. That was to demonstrate that they were spiritually dead. They could no longer have a relationship with God. But God has provided a perfect solution to that spiritual death, and that is through the work of Christ on the cross where he died spiritually between 12 noon and 3 p.m., as signified by the fact that he screamed out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During those three hours... Our sins were judicially imputed to him. And therefore, during that time, there was a judicial, not a real, but a judicial separation between God the Father and God the Son, while, as the Scripture says, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And so the provision of salvation was made 
Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history so that anyone can have anyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. Anybody can have access to the cross, to eternal life, by simply faith alone and Christ alone. So the Lord's table is a picture of that. It was instituted by Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross at the Last Supper. He used the elements, two elements that were in the Passover meal, to uh, reinvest them with new meaning. No longer would they be reflective of the Exodus event for the Jews, but they would be uh, elements that reflected upon the work of Christ. And the commandment was that we should do this in remembrance of him. And so it is a time for the believer to remember, a time of uh, during the uh, stillness, during the quiet of the Lord's table. It is a time, an opportunity for you to think, for you to reflect upon all that God has provided for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the spiritual assets, all the spiritual blessings that God gave you at the instant of your salvation as part of your identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It is a time for us to not only reflect upon all that God has given to us, but what we are doing as believers with these assets that God has given us and with this unique spiritual life that God has bequeathed to us. So as we begin, we, as always, we start with a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says that we are to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table, and that is a reflection upon the fact that we need to make sure there's no known, unconfessed sin in our life. We need to, so we have a few moments of silent prayer to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Confess our sins, make sure we are in fellowship, and prepare to participate in the Lord's table. We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, during which time the deacons who will serve will come forward, and then I will ask Ernie Dillon if he would please return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. The night before he went to the cross, our Lord celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. The course of the meal, he took the bread, which was unleavened, and he broke it and he passed it out to the disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat. I'm going to ask Dave Tongren if he would please return thanks for the cup.
Jesus then took the cup. In the course of the Passover meal, it was the third cup called the cup of redemption. He said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together. Open your hymnals to hymn number 258. 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This is a record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to uh, just open in prayer since we uh, just had communion. Let's just bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study this morning. Father, again, we thank you for this privilege to study your word, this opportunity we have, the freedom we have in this nation. Father, we continue to pray for those from this congregation who are uh, serving in the military, one of the military branches of this nation. We pray that you would... Uh, give them courage if they find themselves in harm's way. We pray that for the leaders that you would give them wisdom as they devise strategy and as they seek to uh, destroy the enemy. Father, we pray for the enemy that they might be confounded and that you would uh, give us the skill, the wisdom, the intelligence we need in order to thwart their schemes. Father, as we as believers continue to study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that we might realize that this is not just some uh, abstract uh, activity for accumulating knowledge, but that this is indeed to conform our thinking to the reality as expressed by your word, that these are the obligations that you have placed upon us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, recipients of your grace those who are royal members of your family. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we teach today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we will continue from where we stopped last time in verse 16. The subject in 1 John 3 and on into chapter 4 and 5, is the subject of love. 
the subject of what it means for the believer to have love and to fulfill the command that Jesus gave in first in John chapter 13 that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church. I don't think there's any other doctrine, perhaps, that is quite as difficult for most people to fully comprehend, understand, and apply than the doctrine related to what we might call Christian love as an overall term because it would imply not only our personal love for God the Father, but also our love for all mankind, impersonal love for all mankind as we define it, unconditional love. And the difficulty in that is that the more we become acquainted with what Jesus Christ did on the cross, the more we come to understand the plan of God and what that entailed in terms of understanding his love for us, and that that love that he showed for us is the model, is the archetype of our love, that we are expected, and as we saw from the verbiage here in 1 John 3.16, we are obligated to manifest that same love in our lives, the more we realize this goes far beyond innate human ability. It can only happen as a result of the work of God the Holy Spirit in our life. But we have to understand what this is because too often there is, there are too many counterfeits of this kind of love that, that are present in the church, in churches, various churches, simply because people don't uh, think profoundly enough, don't think deeply enough, don't think uh, biblically enough about what this kind of love is. When we talk about love, we have to recognize that this is not something abstract. I want to piggyback on something I was teaching in the first hour in our study of 1 Corinthians, and that is that, that as we've studied there, we realize that there are really two ways of looking at everything in life, no matter what it is. There is God's way, there's man's way, we call God's way divine viewpoint, man's way human viewpoint. Man's way of human viewpoint has many different manifestations, many different expressions, all kinds of different religions, all kinds of different philosophies are all part of human viewpoint. The one thing that all of them have in common is independence from God. Divine viewpoint, though, is expressed in the Scripture as a unified viewpoint of God, where God, who is the creator of all things, has the right also to tell us what reality is. He is the definer of reality. That as believers, we are to live consistent with what God defines as reality and not live independently of that reality. That means that when we come to understanding any concepts or categories in the Scripture, we have to understand them as they are defined and revealed to us starting in the Scriptures and not understand them in some sort of abstract, autonomous uh, sense. Love is one of those areas where we often fall prey to this, and we start, as soon as we hear the word love, man seems to have this sort of uh, intuitive sense that, that they know what love is. Man seems to have this uh, sense that I, I, because I've had certain feelings, because I've had certain emotions, certain relationships, because of certain observations in life, that I inherently, intuitively know what love is. The Scripture says that's categorically false. We only know what love is by starting at with the Scriptures. Now, this goes to an important point of methodology, and I want to draw 
some application here for those of you who are uh, prep school teachers and those of you who are parents and trying to teach your kids at home. And this goes to just goes to your methodology of teaching biblical concepts to your kids. For example, in love, we say love is not something that is abstract. Righteousness in the Scripture is not something that's some abstract category. Integrity is not something that's just some sort of abstract uh, category. By abstract, I mean that this is not a concept that is developed through logic or on the basis of, of uh, observation. For example, if you go back and you look at Greek philosophy, you study something like Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics or you look at Plato's Republic, you see that there are many, many values, many virtues that are developed, but they're developed autonomously as just abstract categories so that these ideals, these virtues, sort of exist hanging out there in space somewhere as independent absolutes divorced from anything uh, concrete or specific. Unfortunately, when we do that, you almost deify a concept like that. Divine viewpoint is never developed that way. The Scriptures never come at us and talk about righteousness or love or integrity or justice in some sort of abstract manner, in some sort of just abstract concept. You never have the um, Scriptures define love or righteousness apart from some concrete manifestation of that value in the person and work of God and specifically at the cross. For example, when we come to this passage in 1 John 3.16, John says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. In other words, we, he's not talking about love abstractly. He doesn't say, okay, here's what love is. Love means this, 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 and this. And now we're going to look at what Jesus did, and Jesus is demonstrating love. Well, he says it's just the opposite. We know what love is because Jesus Christ as the creator is the personification of love, and we can only know what love is if we look at who he is and what he did at the cross. Any discussion of love that doesn't start there is just some sort of abstract human opinion of love, but it's not understanding what it is as defined by the Creator who is the God who has the right to define and determine what everything is. So we know what love is because of the concrete manifestation of it at the cross. We know what righteousness is because of the concrete manifestation of that in the life of Christ as he walked on the earth. But what about Old Testament believers, we might say? Well, they had their manifestations of God as well. For example, in the Garden of Eden, you had the pre-incarnate Son of God coming and spending time with with Adam and Esha. She was known before the fall, Eve after the fall. God comes, God the Son comes, and He talks with them and teaches them and instructs them every day. What do you think they're talking about? Well, how did it go last night? Did you get a good night's sleep. You know, you're working hard in the garden and got any any um, uh, problems? Everything's going okay. No, He was instructing them on the nature of reality. So that as they spent time with the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, they learned about the character of God in a concrete manifestation of God, not just some sort of abstract talk about religious principles or uh, Christian ideals or virtue, but it's always concrete. 
God is love because that's who he is, not because he meets some sort of abstract uh, definition of love. He is righteous because that's who he is in the very core of his character, not because he fits some external pattern or standard outside of himself. Therefore, we know love only by looking at the cross. We know righteousness only by looking at the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Now, let, let me apply that a little bit. For those of you who are teaching either as parents or in the prep school, don't fall into a trap of trying to teach values or attributes, ethics, or, or virtue apart from specific concrete instances in Scripture. Always take whatever the, the doctrinal principle it is and try to articulate that in concrete examples in the, in the Scriptures. That's why God gave them to us. Notice, the Bible is not written like some philosophical textbook where you're dealing with abstract realities. It's dealing with people living out their lives, and those lives and those instances, those examples are given to us in the Scripture in order to give us God's viewpoint and to illustrate uh, what he has revealed in terms of these virtues and in terms of his character. So he, that's an important methodological difference to distinguish. For example, let me give you another example, because this is a little hard for some of you to get your, your mental fingers around. It's easy for us, if we were to start with love or righteousness or integrity, to begin with a word or a concept and a definition. You might start off saying, well, God is righteous. Well, let's look up the word righteousness in uh, in the dictionary. So we go to Webster's Third International Dictionary or we go to the Oxford English Dictionary and you look up the word righteousness and it lists 10, 12 different meanings in English for the word righteousness. So you write down some, some you think might apply, some you don't think apply. See, immediately, as soon as you start making some distinctions between some of those different definitions, you're using some sort of judgment to decide which would apply and which wouldn't apply. Well, where are you getting the norms and standards to make that judgment as to what applies or what doesn't apply? Then you would turn to an English thesaurus, perhaps, for synonyms, and as you look at those synonyms, you would discover words like virtue, moral excellence, integrity. You might go on to look those words up, and then on the basis of that information, you begin to design a lesson based on those concepts. Now, what you've done is you've totally ripped righteousness out of the character of God and the manifestation of God in the Garden of Eden and in his dealing with man at the fall so that you're treating righteousness or integrity as if it's just some sort of abstract concept rather than starting with the Scriptures and developing everything from the Scripture. Now, if you did that, you wouldn't be teaching things that are necessarily wrong. You would be teaching some things that are right, some things that might be a little fuzzy, and some things that, that would not necessarily be true in terms of a biblical guideline. So methodology is important. How we do what we do is just as important as what we do. Remember, a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. It's only a right thing that's done in a right way that's right. So we have to do that, and, and it teaches us, and when you're teaching your kids, it's going to teach them to think biblically, not to think like, like the world thinks in terms of just simple abstract categories, but to think in terms of what does God say about a particular matter, how has God illustrated this in his word, and it's going to teach them to continuously go back and think in terms of God's revelation as the absolute 
standard. And that's what we find here in this passage when we read in 1 John 3.16 that we know love by this, that he laid down his life as a substitute for us. So when we start at that with that starting point in verse 16, then we go back and we know from our study of Scripture and comparing Scripture with Scripture that this relates to the basic commandment that Jesus gave the disciples in the upper room discourse in John 13, 34, and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, when we look at that passage, and we've gone through the exegesis of it many times, the standard of comparison is as I love you. Jesus is saying that the kind of love you're to show to other believers is the same kind of love that I'm showing to you. In other words, you the the, the standard, the the point of comparison, the point of um, of analysis to critique your own love toward one another is the standard that I'm exemplifying on the cross. So Jesus is clearly stating that love that starts from any other place, if it starts with emotion, starts with sentiment, starts with feeling, has no place in understanding this. This is a love that goes far beyond uh, human sentiment. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, by this, that is by your love for one another, All men will know that you are my disciples. Now, disciple doesn't mean believer. A disciple is someone who is a student of Scripture, a student of doctrine, a student of the Word of God, somebody who is making it a priority in their life to know the Word of God, to walk by means of the Spirit, to advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. This is a disciple, and what will demonstrate a person as a student of the Scripture is not their knowledge of the Scripture, not their advanced vocabulary, not their understanding of theology and intricate theological concepts, but that they are exemplifying this profound, unique love that Jesus Christ demonstrated at the cross. So Jesus says, It is by this that all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So twice in these two verses he reiterates the mandate that we are to have love for one another. Now, most of you know, believers, that you're thinking about at this point, you're saying, how in the world can I love them? I don't even like them. They're they're obnoxious. They're rude. They're immature. You know, on occasion, they don't take a bath. Whatever it might be, I can't stand to be around them. Their personality is smarmy and obsequious. And I just can't stand them. And why in the world does God say that I have to love them? Well, that can't be produced by you in the flesh anyway, so give up. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is the byproduct the Holy Spirit produces in your life if you're walking by the Spirit. And it can only be produced by the Holy Spirit. But before we get into that, I want to look at eight points eight characteristics or eight observations based on John 13, 34, and 35. First thing we can say about this is that the command to love is has to do with something objective. Love here is not subjective. By that I mean it's not something that's going to be based upon your feelings or your emotions. 
It's not going to be based on having a certain kind of attractiveness in the object of love because particularly this is focusing on not on people who are attractive but people who are obnoxious. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that means while we were in rebellion, disobedient children, unattractive and obnoxious to God, God still demonstrated his love for us, and Christ died on the cross as a substitute for us. So the demonstration of God's love for fallen mankind is not the demonstration of love for likable objects. It's not the demonstration of love for an object that has affinity for God. It's not the demonstration of love for someone who is who is easy for us to love. It is the demonstration of an attitude and a characteristic that cuts across our natural human grain. It is impossible apart from the work of God. So it's an objective concept with an objective model. It's not based on some sort of subjective uh, feeling that, um, well, I, I love them because I, I feel a certain way towards them or or something on that nature. There's a clear objective model and an objective concept so that you can evaluate your own life. You can determine how you are doing in terms of maturing and applying the principle of impersonal love towards all mankind. It means that this is not a concept that is based on attraction. Second observation. The identifying characteristic of a believer an advancing believer, a maturing believer, not just a believer, because there's a lot of carnal believers who don't care and aren't concerned, too busy for God, too busy to study His Word, too busy to uh, uh, live up to the obligations that God's given us and all the wonderful things He's given us. And so they're living their life in reversionism, and they're living their life disobedient to Scripture. But this is a life of the believer that's advancing to maturity. The identifying characteristic of the maturing believer is not the symbol of the cross, it's not carrying your Bible, it's not having um, you know, doctrinal notebooks at home that are all organized and classified, and it's not going to a certain kind of church, it's not uh, dressing a certain way or following a certain dress code or even living up to a certain kind of morality. Remember, unbelievers can be moral too. So the identifying the second point is simply the identifying characteristic of maturing believers is not some external uh, symbol. Third point of observation is that this love is not emotion, not to be confused with emotion, sentimentality, or any other kind of feeling. In fact, at the time that you're exercising this kind of love, your emotions may be going 180 degrees opposite. You may be thinking, I really don't like this person. They have offended me. They have ridiculed me. They have insulted me. I, I just don't care to express this kind of love for them at all. Ne- nevertheless, because of the objectivity that doctrine gives you, you know that you are going to behave toward them in the same way that God behaves because you understand that it flows from his integrity and not your integrity. This isn't some kind of concept of superficial friendliness like we've all been there, the pastor who has everybody stand up and turn to the person next to him and give him a hug and tell him you love him and now turn to the other person next to you. And, you know, if there's somebody here in the congregation that uh, has offended you or you've offended 
you know, go over to them and give them a hug and tell them you forgive them. Well, you know, we never do that kind of stuff here because it just, it waters down and destroys the whole concept of biblical love. It's so superficial. You know, it's, it's manipulative. And that's one of the greatest problems that you run into in, in, in studying a passage like this is number one, there's honest guilt because we look at the mandate here and we say, I don't measure up. But on the other hand, we also can, can go too far and, and immerse ourselves in some, some uh, arrogant, self-absorbed guilt trip and start beating ourselves up in, in ways where we've converted this whole thing into some kind of manipulative, emotional guilt trip. You know, aren't we just lovely people? Fourth observation is that this is based on character. It is based on integrity. It's based on character that is developed from walking by the Holy Spirit, taking in the Word of God, implying it, and over time, God the Holy Spirit is the one who produces this in us. See, that's the point of the fruit of the Spirit. In first, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. That's fruit. It's production by the Holy Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. He produces the fruit. You, you don't get this by saying, I'm going to go out and today I'm going to demonstrate the love of Christ. Now, there's an element in which you do use it that way, but you can't just manufacture it that way. This is something that, that is gradually developed and produced in the life of the growing believer, and one day you wake up and you realize that you're dealing with people in a way that you never dealt with them before, that that self-absorbed arrogance that uh, characterized you when you were younger isn't there anymore, and you're looking at people and interacting with people in a completely different way. It's a character that's based on the production of God the Holy Spirit, and following the example of God's love for fallen, rebellious, obnoxious mankind. Fifth observation, it challenges unbelievers. See, when unbelievers see this, they know what it is. They know it's different. They know that they've never seen anything like it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if Jesus is the creator of the universe, and if Jesus is the one who defines what reality is, then what Jesus is saying in this statement is that this is probably the greatest witness. Notice, I'm not saying it's not the only witness. You'll always hear people say, well, I'm just going to let my life and my love demonstrate the gospel. That's a way of saying I'm a coward and I don't want to explain the gospel to anybody. I'm going to let them try to guess at it by watching how I live. It is a challenge to unbelievers because unbelievers can't imitate this. It is something that is genuine. It is something that comes bearing the very testimony of God because it is produced by God. Sixth observation. John 13.35 presupposes that the world can and will know this. Jesus says, by this all men will know. So it presupposes they have the ability to know this and that they can identify it. So the question then, what comes first, doctrine or love? Well, for the unbeliever, emotional love comes first. Ultimately, that's all they can have, even though there may be areas of love based on character when it gets to the most uh, difficult situations. All the unbeliever can ever produce is some sort of finite, fallible love. 
But for the believer, doctrine comes first, and this kind of love is an outgrowth of the doctrine that has been assimilated into the soul. The seventh point is that this is the greatest apologetic or defense for our faith. The term apologetic doesn't mean to apologize for something. That's It's a transliteration from the Greek word apologeo, which was a legal term used as something in the courtroom that was a defense, so that a defense attorney would present a case. So one the greatest uh, case that you can present in life for the reality of the gospel is this kind of love, this kind of impersonal love. Now, just a point of definition, the reason I use the word impersonal is not that it's some sort of cold, distant kind of love, but that you don't have to have personal knowledge and acquaintance with the object of love. It can be somebody at the grocery store. It can be somebody out on the highway. It's treating people a certain way, not because of who they are, but because of who you are. Therefore, you don't have to know anything about who they are. In that sense, it's impersonal. You don't have to know them. You don't have to have a relationship with them. It's unconditional in the sense that it's not based on any conditions on their part. They don't have to look a certain way, act a certain way, or respond a certain way. Remember, as we've studied in in 1 Corinthians in the earlier hour, witnessing has two aspects to it, the life and the lips. Now, we have to witness with the lips because there's no other way that you can know the specifics of the gospel in case unless somebody clearly articulates that the condition for salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. You can live a spiritual life, you can be spiritually mature, you can demonstrate the love of Christ better than anybody in human history, and if you don't tell the person that they have to trust Christ as Savior, they're never going to figure that out by watching how you live. But if you're constantly living a life of gross immorality, uh, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, uh, where your whole lifestyle is no different from any other unbeliever, and then you come along and you try to witness to an unbeliever, they're probably going to laugh at you because there's nothing in your life to indicate that what you're saying has any validity to it. Because you see, our life is, is sort of a foundation and gives us that platform for being able to witness. Now, don't get trapped in legalism here. Don't don't think that somehow you have to really be living a solid, mature Christian life in order to witness. See, we always look, the sin nature, it's just wonderful, isn't it, to watch how the sin nature is so rapid at generating rationalization so that we can avoid telling somebody else the gospel. I mean, we don't even have to think about it. It just sort of comes to our mind instantly sometimes. You don't have to be perfect, and this isn't demanding perfection, but it is saying that Christianity, once again, is not just some sort of abstract theology. This isn't just some sort of abstract principle of eternal life that hangs out there, but that it is incarnate, as Jesus was incarnate. It's something that is real and impacts daily life. When when God is going to communicate to us, notice God did not hang out there in outer space somewhere as some sort of abstract concept and communicate and reveal uh, his himself and his word to us through a philosophical textbook. He became flesh and dwelt among us so that there was a physical instantiation of everything he said 
in a life so that the witness can't be divorced. You can't divorce what you say from how you live. They go together. And Jesus is saying that the greatest illustration of the grace of God is going to be your manifestation of this kind of love for one another. Now, the eighth observation is this is a challenge to the arrogant doctrinal believer who thinks somehow that Christianity is just nothing more than what you know and the doctrine that you've accumulated. While it is true you can't get to this kind of love without knowledge, knowledge without love is meaningless. 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge makes arrogant. You're always going to run into, let me warn you about this, you will always, as someone who comes to this kind of a church where we emphasize teaching the Word and the emphasis is on knowing doctrine, you're always going to find some uh, uh, shallow, superficial, emotional Christian out there who's going to quote this verse and say, knowledge makes arrogant. But love edifies, you know, and they're going to go to their little sentimental church where they hug everybody and say, see, we're not arrogant because, because we're not on this knowledge trip. Well, the reason they get there is because they don't know anything about Greek. The word translated knowledge here is gnosis. It's not epinosis. Epinosis is spiritually usable uh, doctrine like we studied in the first hour. Gnosis is just academic knowledge. Now, the trouble is there's a lot of believers who've never converted their academic knowledge of Scripture into uh, epinosis, and therefore that knowledge does make arrogant. Don't fall into that trap. So we've looked at these eight observations, and we realize that this is not something we can just sort of gloss over. In fact, John's going to spend three chapters developing the whole concept of of impersonal love, and some of you probably won't be showing up at the second hour for a while simply because it's a little convicting. Last time I went over eight characteristics. I want to review these again, and I want you to know that notice my methodology here. I haven't just sat down, thought about love, and thought about what are the characteristics of love, and developed these eight characteristics independently from Scripture. You sit and you look at Scripture, you observe what Christ did on the cross, you observe how Christ interacted with people on the earth, you look at uh, God the Father in terms of his plan from eternity past to provide salvation for mankind, and then as you analyze those elements, you, you look at what characteristics are exemplified here that we can emulate. Now, I want to give you a couple of warnings about these characteristics because there's a tendency to take these and start abstracting them. You know, we always have that problem. I think we inherit that in our culture because of the influence of um, Aristotelian-type thinking in, in our education system. So there's a couple of warnings here. First of all, these aren't the only characteristics we could come up with. These are just eight characteristics that I've come up with at this point. So it's not an exhaustive list. Secondly, like any list of characteristics, even the attributes of God, they're not all evident to the same degree at every instant of Christ's life. They're not all evident all the time, but they're all nevertheless going to be present at some level. 
And what I mean, the, 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 what I mean by that is when you go through passages like the fact that this is an, it's initiating, it's aggressive, that means it's always going to assert itself, and it's humble, it doesn't seek its own, you immediately have people say, well, you know, if I really applied that, somebody's just going to take advantage of me. You know, if I applied that, somebody's just going to walk all over me. You're basically telling me to just go out there and become a victim. See, that's human viewpoint misunderstanding of what I'm saying. You look at how Jesus, no one could ever accuse Jesus of living a life as a victim. See, he's, he, he becomes a man, he, sure, he is, he's vulnerable to certain assaults, and ultimately he's going to be treated in one of the most unjust ways conceivable, where a perfect individual guilty of no crime at all is given one of the harshest criminal death penalties in all of human history. And so people say, well, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be victimized. Okay, so you're saying that somehow Christ becoming a victim of an unjust legal system is somehow wrong. That's what you've just implied by that statement. But that doesn't mean you always put yourself in some position like that. Jesus didn't. He knows exactly why he's on the earth, and he knows what God's plan is for his life. And there were times when he specifically avoided certain circumstances. There were times when he, twice, at the beginning and at the end of his ministry, where he physically assaults the money changers in the temple, and he goes in and he picks them up bodily. And we're talking about not just one or two people. We're talking about uh, in the portico of Solomon, they would, there, were, there were probably 20, 30 or more uh, of these money changers who had their table set up there where when the hundreds, the, the, the thousands thronged to the city during, during the feast days like at, at Pentecost and, and Passover and Tabernacles, when they would, these, these thousands and thousands would come, they would come with their, from outside of Israel, they would have foreign coins and they would need to exchange those coins and they would need to then buy the, uh, uh, various birds and other animals for the sacrifices. So they would have all these tables set up. So when the scripture says that Jesus cast out the, the money changers, I want you to picture an event of physical violence. I mean, he is pick, he is bodily throwing out dozens of individuals. This is not this this is love. That should have just blown your whole model of what love is. See, that's as much a part of what love is as as Jesus going to the cross. It's all part of that dynamic. This isn't some sort of love. Is what I'm trying to get across here is that love is not just some simple, one-sided, or two-dimensional concept, which is what we want to reduce it to. That's why parents, if you love your children, you will punish them, and sometimes harshly, the penalty should fit the crime, because you love them enough to discipline them. Now, that you, you will discover, as your parents said to you, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts them, and you'll realize that that does have some truth to it. But if you don't do it, what you're basically saying is, I'm going to love them into a life of lack of discipline and failure. That's, you know, that's the same thing people do when we when we get an opportunity to witness to somebody. And we say, I really don't want to offend them. So I'm going to love them into hell. Love has many different dimensions to it. 
it has strong dimensions. It's had disciplinary dimensions. It has, in a, in, at times, a violent dimension to it. We have to understand that it is much broader and complex than this kind of little superficial sentimentality that gets drilled into us in our uh, American culture. So we're going to have to pick some of those things apart, but I just want to quickly review these eight characteristics. It's, it's initiating. God initiated this in eternity past. God did it. We didn't. We are not, mankind did not initiate. So love means that it's based on your character. You start it, not them. It's not based on who and what they are, but who and what you are. Secondly, it's aggressive. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. That does not always mean that it, it, it expresses itself the same way. It's not trying to curry favor or generate approbation. It's humble. That means it's under authority. See, the most humble man of all the Old Testament was Moses. Yet Moses is a strong, assertive, dynamic leader. That changes your whole idea of what humility is. Humility is strength under control, the, under con- the control of divine authority. It's intense. The fourth characteristic, it's intense. There's a zealous determination to achieve the goal that God has set before it. Fifth, it's steadfastly loyal, not loyal to the object of love, not loyal to yourself, but loyal to the character of God. There's an element of consecration. It is set apart for a divine purpose. Seven, there's a dedication there. It, it, at some level, it's a recognition that this is our task. This is a command given to us as believers, and we need to fulfill the mandate. And there's a level of devotion that we're going to give or apply our time, our attention, ourself, and our resources to a particular activity. All of that is inherent in the concept of love. Now let's look at the next verse. We're going to get a practical application here. John's going to take the concept of divine love as exemplified at the cross and apply it to us and show how it relates to probably one of the most foundational areas in human life, and that is your wallet, your bank account. But whoever has the world's goods, I always love the way these, you know, there's this, in modern translation, there tends to be this socialistic theme that goes through here. Like in the early church, they were all a bunch of communists. When it says they held everything in common, it doesn't mean they went into some form of communal living. It was they recognized that everything given to them, everything you had, no matter how you worked for it, what your possession was, was ultimately delegated to you by God for his service. And therefore, whatever property, whatever money we have, I may have it, I may invest it, I may accumulate tremendous wealth with it. And let me tell you, there is nothing wrong with a Christian accumulating great wealth. What's wrong is where you're making the accumulation of wealth the end result of life. I know some men who have accumulated great wealth, and they have that great great wealth in order to benefit the cause of Christ. And they they give tremendous amounts of money to support missionaries, to support local churches. Uh, we have a couple of people like that who have been benefactors of, uh, of our church here and the ministry here. There's no way that, that this congregation had the resources to spend the kind of money we've spent to upgrade the sound system or the tape ministry. And yet we've had two or three individuals from outside this church who've given, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in order for us to be able to do this because they are, have that ability to make 
a lot of money and they use it for that purpose. But if you don't have a lot of money, doesn't mean you have the excuse of saying, well, I can't give to support the local church. We give as every man purposes in his heart, and that's related to how much we understand God's grace and understand impersonal love as exemplified in this verse. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Well, we have some important things to understand and clarify in terms of translation here. It begins with the relative pronoun whoever, which is includes any any believer. Whoever, any believer that comes along, whoever has, and there's a present active subjunctive of echo, meaning whoever might have, it's potential. Maybe you have it, maybe you don't. And the object of the of the verb is the the world's goods. Whoever has the the world's goods, and actually that's a terrible translation. In the Greek, it is tan bion to kosmu. It is uh, the 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 life necessities, the necessities of life of the world, uh, literally speaking. We might break it down like this. It's the word bion, or the accusative bion, which is the accusative of bios, from which we get the bio, B-I-O, in biology. This doesn't refer to the principle of life, which is the Greek word zoe, but it refers to the means or the manner of life. It refers to the means to sustain life. So what this says is whoever might possess the means to maintain life. Not the world's goods. It's not saying whoever has any kind of material possession. It's saying whoever has the means to support life, the means to maintain life, and sees or beholds his brother in need. Now, you have two verbs here that are compound, and we have to understand that it's whoever has and sees. Now, some folks just don't have. There's a principle here, and that is you can't give what you don't have. You can't give from a negative bank account. But whatever you have positively, and it may not be money, some of you may not have very much money, but you have a lot of time, and you have certain abilities. And you may not be able to, to uh, give a whole lot financially to support the local church, but you can certainly give of your time to support a local church ministry. And you can also give of certain spiritual, your own spiritual gifts in support of a local church ministry. Giving is not something that is just related to finances. Does there, whoever might have the uh, means to sustain life and sees his brother, that is, another believer in need. That is, that there's some, some genuine, legitimate need that this other believer has. If you have what they need and you then close your heart against him. Now, that's a terrible translation. It's not hard here. You'll find in the next uh, few verses that uh, John does use the word heart. But it's not heart here. It's actually the Greek word splachna, which means the bowels or the kidneys, and it's used in the Old Testament as a concrete. You know, the the, the uh, Hebrews, the Jews, did not have abstract concepts of uh, of like emotion. They they talked about con- used concrete images, and they talked about the bowels because you know when you get really mad or upset, where do you feel it? You feel it in your gut. You know when you're really um, giving it everything you've got, we're saying, you know, you're really putting your gut into it. 
And that, that's the idea here. It's used in the Old Testament as a concrete representation of emotions, both good and bad. Bad emotions such as anger and hatred and bitterness. Good emotions such as uh, the application of grace, often kindness, compassion, benevolence. And the idea here is compassion. Spockna is often used to represent compassion, which is the application of grace. See, compassion is not just feeling sorry for somebody. In fact, that doesn't have anything to do with compassion. Compassion has to do with understanding their their need and understanding uh, what they're going through and being able to help them or encourage them in the midst of a difficult circumstance. It has an objective base in the grace of God and not in emo- just subjective emotion. We have to be aware of the difference between genuine compassion and pseudo-compassion. Pseudo-compassion tries to motivate by emotion, by guilt, always focusing on trying to give people money, feeling sorry for people, and how terrible they have it, whereas uh, we don't have that example at all in the Scriptures. Jesus had compassion, but he didn't run around and heal everybody. He didn't solve everybody's poverty problem. He didn't solve everybody's physical problem. People were unemployed and out of work. Jesus didn't solve all their unemployment and out of work problems. See, the modern liberal comes along and goes, well, what kind of compassion is that? That's because you've got a faulty view of compassion. See, there's a, legit, a time when you can meet people's needs where ultimately what it does is just destroy them. But this is not talking about this. This is giving us a legitimate example. You observe a person who has a legitimate need. You have the means to to uh, help them in that situation, and you don't. It says you shut your heart to them. And actually, the word's not heart. It is uh, splotting, meaning you shut off your compassion. You you just stifle it. The, the Greek verb here is klio, which means to shut up, lock away, or to erect a barrier against. You refuse to um, admit that there's a legitimate need there or that you have any responsibility in taking care of it. You know, it's amazing as you watch believers grow and mature uh, and they understand grace, they realize that, that when God provides them with certain things and they have it, that part of the reason God supplies it is so they can give it to other people. And there's a wonderful joy in being able to give and provide for other people. The whole ministry is that way. The, the, the church and ministry, missionaries, camps, that's not a business. They're not selling anything. They don't make any profit. That comes only through believers who have max, maximized an understanding of this principle. And that is that what they have has been given to them by the Lord, and a certain amount of that is to advance uh, the cause of doctrine. And that is what has made it possible for uh, missionaries throughout the ages to be able to go places and to take the gospel around the world. So the text says, whoever might have the world's good and might behold his brother in need. You see, this is potential. It doesn't happen every day, but it, it will happen. Beholds his brother in legitimate need and shuts off his compassion toward him. The question is, how does the love of God, and there it's a, a subjective genitive, it's a love is a noun of action, and it's a subjective genitive, and it means God's love. It's not the love for God. It's the love from God. How does the love from God abide in him? And there we see that the word abide is our familiar word meno, which indicates fellowship. 
remember, fellowship is a two-way street. We have fellowship with God, and He has fellowship with us. Jesus says, if I abide in you, you abide in me. If my word abides in you, and you abide in my word. It goes both ways. So here, when He says, how can the love from God abide in you, in that individual, their love for God, their, 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 um, their love for man is not abiding. They're not in fellowship. So the point is that if you're not exercising impersonal love in terms of this level of compassion and meeting legitimate needs that other people have, then uh, that is uh, not then that is not a demonstration of a believer advancing to maturity, a believer who is in fellowship with God. In fact, it is an indication that you're not in fellowship and that you're not advancing in maturity. The believer who is in fellowship, the believer who is abiding, the believer who is walking by the Holy Spirit is going to be applying this principle in their daily life. It is an expression of grace. Grace means that we're generous, not because of who the other person is, but because of who we are. We have a generous spirit based upon our understanding of, of God. We realize that that we are generous with our time, we're generous with our energy, we're generous with our talents. We're generous with our finances. There's a priority list here. First of all, the local church. The primary direction for our for our support is the local church and the local church ministry, and that would include uh, missionaries and supporting the spread of doctrine in various different ways. These ministries don't function on their own. They function because of people who give of their time, their talent, and their treasure. Now, there's a second tier of giving, and that involves various charities, hospitals, medical research, other legitimate nonprofit organizations. Then there's a third level of giving, and that relates to uh, individuals, friends, and families, and those who are in legitimate financial need. We run into people like that on a day basis, maybe a family member who has a legitimate need, maybe someone else, but, but we are not to shut our compassion off for them. We are to... Uh, Help them if God has given us the means, we are to help them. Now let's have a little application here for fun. We have a work day coming up. We have a need. See, this local church doesn't function apart from the people who are part of it. It's not just going to happen. You know, the things that go on here don't just happen because, uh, it's there. It happens because people give of their time. And too often we have a work day where three or four people show up. Well, this old building needs a tremendous amount of work, and it's the kind of thing that that takes a lot of hours. Well, we don't have the financial resources as a congregation to go spend uh, several thousand dollars to get somebody to come out here and do some of these things. But if we have 25 or 30 people show up and give us about six hours' worth of work, we, we need to paint the outside. We need to replace all the shutters on the outside. We need to do a deep clean inside. Uh, you know, we have a lady who comes in here and cleans every week and does a great job, but we can come in here with some furniture polish and some other things and really uh, work on cleaning up the nooks and crannies, get all the dust out and back in the little corners, get toothbrushes out and just really deep clean the place. And we can have a lot of fun doing it. It will be a lot of fun if we have a lot of people here pitching in. It won't be a lot of fun if people shut their, let me see, shut their compassion when they have a need, see everybody here has time. You may not have a lot of money to give, but you have a lot of have a certain amount of time and ability. 
And this is not exactly what one would call um, uh, skilled labor. So we need some unskilled labor. And that's just one example, but there are many needs in a local church, and that's just one, plus you have uh, other examples. So this is a way in which we express uh, impersonal and unconditional love. Next time we'll come back and continue our study and continue to flesh out what it means to love one another with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for the challenge that it presents. We recognize that we can only fulfill the mandate to love one another as we study your word and walk by means of God the Holy Spirit who produces that fruit in us. Father, we pray now that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you have to do is trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need to join a church, reform your life. You don't need to make any promises or bargains with God. All you need to do is accept that free gift that he supplied for you when Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You can solve that eternal that question related to your eternal destiny right now by one simple decision for Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.